Section 10 of The Golden Bough, A Study in Magic Religion, 3rd Edition, Volume 1, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 5. The Magical Control of the Weather. 1. The Public Magician. The patient reader may remember that we were led to plunge into the labyrinth of magic, in which we have wandered for so many pages, by a consideration of two different types of man-god. This is the clue which has guided our devious steps through the maze, and brought us out at last on a higher ground, whence, resting a little by the way, we can look back over the path we have already traversed, and forward to the longer and steeper road we have still to climb. Two Types of Man-God the religious and the magical. As a result of the foregoing discussion, the two types of human gods may conveniently be distinguished as the religious and the magical man-god, respectively. In the former, a being of an order different from the superior to man is supposed to become incarnate, for a longer or shorter time, in a human body, manifesting his superhuman power and knowledge by miracles wrought and prophecies uttered through the medium of the fleshy tabernacle in which he has designed to make up his abode. This may also appropriately be called the inspired or incarnate type of man-god. In it the human body is merely a frail earthly vessel filled with a divine and immortal spirit. On the other hand, a man-god of the magical sort is nothing but a man who possesses, in an unusually high degree, powers which most of these fellows arrogate to themselves on a smaller scale. For in rude society, there is hardly a person who does not dabble in magic. Thus, whereas a man-god of the former or inspired type derives his divinity from a deity who has stooped to hide his heavenly radiance behind a dull mask of earthly mould. A man-god of the latter type draws his extraordinary power from a certain physical sympathy with nature. He is not merely the receptacle of a divine spirit. His whole being, body and soul, is so delicately attuned to the harmony of the world that a touch of his hand or a turn of his head may send a thrill vibrating through the universal framework of things, and conversely, his divine organism is acutely sensitive to such slight changes of environment as would leave ordinary mortals wholly unaffected. By the line between these two types of man-god, however, sharply we may draw it, in theory is seldom to be traced with the precision in practice, and in what follows I shall not insist on it. Public and private magic. The public magician, often a king. We have seen that in practice the magic art may be employed for the benefit either of individuals or of the whole community, and that according as it is directed to one or other of these two objects, it may be called private or public magic. Further, I pointed out that the public magician occupies a position of great influence, from which, if he is a prudent and able man, he may advance step by step to the rank of a chief or king. Thus, an examination of public magic conduces to an understanding of the early kingship, since, in savage and barbarous society, many chiefs and kings appear to owe their authority in great measure to their reputation as magicians. The rise of a class of public professional magicians is a great step in social and intellectual progress. Among the objects of public utility which magic may be employed to secure, the most essential is an adequate supply of food. The examples cited in preceding pages prove that purveyors of food, the hunter, the fisher, the farmer, all resort to magical practices in the pursuit of their various callings. But they do so as private individuals for the benefit of themselves and their families, rather than as public functionaries acting in the interests of the whole people. It is otherwise when the rites are performed, not by the hunters, the fishers, the farmers themselves, 
but by professional magicians on their behalf in primitive society where uniformity of occupation is the rule and the distribution of the community into various classes of workers has hardly begun every man is more or less his own magician he practises charms and incantations for his own good and the injury of his enemies but a great step in advance has been taken when a special class of magicians has been instituted when in other words a number of men have been set apart for the express purpose of benefiting the whole community by their skill whether that skill be directed to the healing of diseases forecasting of the future the regulation of the weather or any other object of general utility the importance of the means adopted by most of these practitioners to accomplish their ends ought not to blind us to the immense importance of the institution itself here is a body of men relieved at least in the highest stages of savagery from the need of earning their livelihood by hard manual toil and allowed nay expected and encouraged to prosecute researches into the secret ways of nature it was at once their duty and their interest no more than their fellows to acquaint themselves with everything that could aid man in his arduous struggle with nature everything that could mitigate his sufferings and prolong his life the properties of drugs and minerals that the causes of rain and drought of thunder and lightning the changes of the seasons the phases of the moon the daily and yearly journeys of the sun the motions of the stars the mystery of life and the mystery of death all these things must have excited the wonder of these early philosophers and stimulated them to find solutions of problems that were doubtless often thrust on their attention in the most practical form by the importunate demands of their clients who expected them not merely to understand but to regulate the great processes of nature for the good of man that their first shots fell very far wide of the mark would hardly be helped the slow the never-ending approach to trust consists in perpetually forming and testing hypotheses accepting those which at the time seem to fit the facts and rejecting the others the views of natural causation embraced by the savage magician no doubt appear to us manifestly false and absurd yet in our day there were legitimate hypotheses though they have not stood the test of experience ridicule and blame are the just need not of those who devise these crude theories but of those who obstinately adhere to them after better had been propounded certainly no men ever had stronger incentives in the pursuit of truth than these savage sorcerers to maintain at least a show of knowledge was absolutely necessary and a single mistake detected might cost in their life this no doubt led them to practice imposture for the purpose of concealing their ignorance but it also supplied them with the most powerful motive for substituting a real for a sham knowledge since if you would appear to know anything by far the best way is actually to know it thus however justly we may reject the extravagant pretensions of magicians and condemn the deceptions which they have practised on mankind the original institution of this class of men has take it all in all been productive of an incalculable good to humanity they were the direct predecessors not merely of our physicians and surgeons but of our investigators and discoverers in every branch of natural science they began the work which has since been carried to such glorious and beneficent issues by their successors in after ages and if the beginning was poor and feeble this is to be imputed to the inevitable difficulties which beset the path of knowledge rather than to the natural incapacity or wilful fraud of the men themselves subchapter two magical control of rain part one one of the chief tasks which the public magician has to perform is to control the weather and especially to ensure an adequate supply of rain the method adopted by the rain-maker is commonly based on homeopathic or imitative magic he seeks to produce rain by imitating it of the things which the public magician sets himself to do for the good of the tribe one of the chief is to control the weather and especially to ensure an adequate fall of rain water is the first essential of life 
and in most countries the supply of it depends upon showers without rain vegetation withers animals and men languish and die hence in savage communities the rainmaker is a very important personage and often a special class of magicians exist for the purpose of regulating the heavenly water supply the methods by which they attempt to discharge the duties of their office are commonly though not always based on the principle of homeopathic or imitative magic if they wish to make rain they simulate it by sprinkling water or mimicking clouds if their object is to stop rain and cause drought they avoid water and resort to warmth and fire for the sake of drying up the too ambient moisture such attempts are by no means confined as a cultivated reader might imagine to the naked inhabitants of the sultry lands like central australia and some parts of eastern and southern africa where often for months together the pitiless sun beats down out of a blue and cloudless sky on the parched and gaping earth they are or used to be common enough among outwardly civilized folk in the moister climates of europe i will now illustrate them by instances drawn from the practice of both the public and private magic examples of making rain by homeopathic magic or imitative magic thus for example in a village near dorpat in russia when rain was much wanted three men used to climb up the fir trees of an old sacred grove one of them drummed with a hammer a kettle or a small cask to imitate thunder the second knocked two firebrands together and made the sparks fly to imitate lightning and the third who was called the rainmaker had a bunch of twigs with which he sprinkled water from a vessel on all sides to put an end to drought and bring down rain women and girls of the village of pluska are wont to go naked by night to the boundaries of the village and there pour water on the ground in halmahera or gilolo a large island to the west of new guinea a wizard makes rain by dipping a branch of a particular kind of tree in water and then scattering the moisture from the dripping bough over the ground in Tseram, it is enough to dedicate the bark of a certain tree to the spirits and lay it in water a javanese mode of making rain is to imitate the pattering sound of raindrops by brushing a coconut leaf over the sheath of a betel nut in a mortar in new britain the rainmaker wraps some leaves of a red and green striped creeper in a banana leaf moistens the bundle with water and buries it in the ground then he imitates with his mouth the plashing of rain amongst the omaha indians of north america when the corn is withering for want of rain the members of the sacred buffalo society fill a large vessel with water and dance four times around it one of them drinks some of the water and spurts it in the air making a fine spray in imitation of a mist or drizzling rain then he upsets the vessel spilling the water on the ground whereupon the dancers fall down and drink up the water getting mud all over their faces lastly they squirt the water into the air making a fine mist this saves the corn in springtime the natchez of north america used to club together to purchase favorable weather for their crops from the wizards if rain was needed the wizards fasted and danced with pipes full of water in their mouths the pipes were perforated like the nozzle of a watering can and through the holes the rainmaker blew the water towards that part of the sky where the clouds hung heaviest but if fine weather was wanted he mounted the roof of his hut and with extended arms blowing with all his might he beckoned to the clouds to pass by in time of drought the damahures indians of mexico will sometimes throw water towards the sky in order that god may replenish his supply and in the month of may they always burn the grass so that the whole country is then wrapped in smoke and travelling becomes very difficult they think that this is necessary to produce rain clouds of smoke being in their opinion equivalent to rain clouds
among the Swazis and Hulubis of southeastern Africa, the rain doctor draws water from a river with various mystic ceremonies and carries it into the cultivated field. Here he throws it in jets from his vessel high into the air, and the falling sprays believe to draw down the clouds and make rain by sympathy. To squirt water from the mouth is the West African mode of making rain, and is practiced also by the Wajakas of Kilimanjaro. Making Rain by Homeopathic or Imitative Magic among the Wahama, on the Albert Nyanzai Lake, the rainmaker pours water into a vessel in which he has first placed a dark stone as large as the hand. Pounded plants and the blood of a black goat are added to the water, and with a bunch of magic herbs the sorcerer sprinkles the mixture towards the sky. In this charm, special efficiency is no doubt attributed to the dark stone and the black goat, their colour being chosen from its resemblance to that of the rain clouds, as we shall see presently. When the rains do not come in due season, the people of Central and Gonaland repair to what is called the Rain Temple. Here they clear away the grass, and the leader pours beer into a pot which is buried in the ground, while he says, Master Choata, you have hardened your heart towards us. What would you have us do? We must perish indeed. Give your children the rains. There is the beer we have given you. Then they all partake of the beer that is left over, even the children being made to sip it. Next, they take branches of trees and dance and sing for rain. When they return to the village, they find a vessel of water set in a doorway by an old woman. So they dip their branches in it and wave them aloft, so as to scatter the drops. After that, the rain is sure to come driving up in heavy clouds. In these practices, we see a combination of religion with magic. For while the scattering of the water drops by means of branches is a purely magical ceremony, the prayer for rain and the offering of beer are purely religious rites. At Takitount in Algeria, when the drought is severe, the people prepare a sacrificial banquet, soda, in the course of which they dance, and filling their mouths with water, spirit it into the air cycling, the rain and abundance. Elsewhere in the course of these banquets, it is customary for the same purpose to sprinkle water on children. At Lemcan, in time of drought, water is thrown from terraces and windows on small girls, who pass singing. During the summer months, Frequent droughts occur among the Japanese Alps. To procure rain, a party of hunters armed with guns climbed to the top of Mount John Drake, one of the most imposing peaks in the range, by kindling a bonfire, discharging their guns, and rolling great masses of rocks down the cliffs. They represent the wished-for storm, and the rain is supposed always to follow within a few days. To make rain, a party of Ainos will scatter water by means of sieves, while others will take a porringer, fit it up with sails and oars as if it were a boat, and then push or draw it about the village and gardens. In Laos, the festival of the New Year takes place about the middle of April and lasts three days. The people assemble in the pagodas, which are decorated with flowers and illuminated. The Buddhist monks perform the ceremonies, and when they come to the prayers for the fertility of the earth, the worshippers pour water into the little holes in the floor of the pagoda as a symbol of the rain which they hope Buddha will send down on the rice fields in due time. In the Mana tribe of northern Australia, the rainmaker goes to a pool and sings over it his magic song. Then he takes some of the water in his hands, brings it and spits it out in various directions. After that he throws water all over himself, scatters it about, and returns quietly to the camp. Rain is supposed to follow. Use of human hair and rain charms among the Australian Aborigines. In the Watjobulak tribe of Victoria, the rainmaker dipped a bunch of his own hair in water, sucked out the water and squirted it westward. 
or he twirled the ball round his head, making a spray like rain. Other Australian tribes employ human hair as a rain charm in other ways. In Western Australia, the natives pluck hair from their armpits and thighs and blow them in the direction from which they wish the rain to come. But if they wish to prevent rain, they light a piece of sandalwood and beat the ground with the burning brand. When the rivers were low and water scarce in Victoria, the wizard used to place human hair in the stream, accompanying the act with chance and gesticulation. But if he wished to make rain, he dropped some human hair in the fire. Hair was never burnt at other times for fear of causing a great fall of rain. The Arab historian Makrizi describes a method of stopping rain, which is said to have been resorted by a tribe of nomads called Alkomar in Hadramaut. They cut a branch from a certain tree in the desert, set it on fire, and then sprinkled the burning brand with water. After that, the vehemence of the rain abated, just as the water vanished when it fell on the growing brand. Some of the eastern Angamis of Manabur are said to perform a somewhat similar ceremony for the opposite purpose, in order, namely, to produce rain. Head of the village puts a burning brand on the grave of a man who has died of burns, and quenches the brand with water while he prays that rain may fall. Here the pouring out of the fire with water, which is an imitation of rain, is reinforced by the influence of the dead man, who having been burnt to death, will naturally be anxious for the descent of rain to cool his scorched body and assuage his pangs. Use of Fire to Stop Rain Other people besides the Arabs have used fire as a means of stopping rain. Thus the Sulka of New Britain heat stones red hot in the fire and put them out in the rain, or they throw hot ashes in the air. They think that the rain will soon cease to fall, for it does not like to be burned by the hot stones or ashes. The Telugus send a little girl out naked into the rain with a burning piece of wood in her hand, which she has to shoo to the rain. That is supposed to stop the downpour. At Port Stevens in New South Wales, the medicine men used to drive away rain by throwing fire sticks into the air, while at the same time they puffed and shouted. Any man of the Nula tribe in northern Australia can stop rain by simply warming a green stick in the fire and then striking it against the wind. When a Thompson Indian of British Columbia wished to put an end to a spell of heavy rain, he held a stick in the fire, then described a circle with it, beginning at the east and following the sun's course till they reached the east again, towards which quarter he held the stick and addressed the rain as follows. Now then, you must stop raining. The people are miserable. Ye mountains become clear. The ceremony was repeated for all the other quarters of the sky. Various ways of making and stopping rain. To bring on rain, the Ainos of Japan wash their tobacco boxes and pipes in a stream, and the Torajas of Central Salives dip rice spoons in water. On the contrary, during heavy rain, the Indians of Guinea are careful not to wash the inside of their pots, lest by so doing they should cause the rain to fall still more heavily. In Billisport it is believed that the grain dealer, who has stored large quantities of grain and wishes to sell it dear, resorts to nefarious means of preventing the rain from falling, lest the abundance of rice, which would follow a copious rainfall, should cheapen his wares. To do this, he collects raindrops from the eaves of his house in an earthen vessel and buries the vessel under the grinding mill. After that, you shall hear thunder rumbling in the distance like the humming sound of the mill at work, but no rain will fall, for the wicked dealer has shut it up and it cannot get out. Rain-making in Queensland In the torrid climate of Queensland, the ceremonies necessary for wringing showers from the cloudless heaven are naturally somewhat elaborate. A prominent part in them 
is played by a rain stick. This is a thin piece of wood about 20 inches long, to which three rainstones and hair cut from the beard have been fastened. The rainstones are pieces of white quartz crystal. Three or four such sticks may be used in the ceremony. About noon, the men who are to take part in it repair to a lonely pool, into which one of them dives and fixes a hollow log vertically in the mud. Then they all go into the water, and, forming a rough circle round the man in the middle who holds the rain stick aloft, they begin stamping with their feet as well as they can, and splashing the water with their hands from all sides on the rain stick. The stamping, which is accompanied by singing, is sometimes a matter of difficulty, since the water may be four feet deep or more. When the singing is over, the man in the middle dives out of sight and attaches the rain stick to the hollow log under water. Then, coming to the surface, he quickly climbs onto the bank and spits out on dry land the water which he imbibed in diving. Should more than one of these rain sticks have been prepared, the ceremony is repeated with each in turn. While the men are returning to camp, they scratch the top of their heads and the inside of their shins from time to time with twigs. If they were to scratch themselves with their fingers alone, they believed that the whole effect of the ceremony would be spoiled. On reaching the camp, they paint their faces, arms, and chests with broad bands of gypsum. During the rest of the day, the process of scratching, accompanied by the song, is repeated at intervals, and thus the performance comes to a close. No woman may set eyes on the rain stick or witness the ceremony of its submergence, but the wife of the chief rainmaker is privileged to take part in the subsequent rite of scratching herself with a twig. When the rain does come, the rain stick is taken out of the water. It has done its work. At Roxburgh, in Queensland, the ceremony is somewhat different. A white quartz crystal, which is to serve as a rainstone, is obtained in the mountains and crushed to powder. Next, a tree is chosen, of which the stem runs up straight for a long way without any branches. Against this trunk, saplings from 15 to 20 feet long are then propped in a circle, so as to form a sort of shed like a bell tent, and in front of the shed, an artificial pond is made in the ground. The men who have collected within the shed now come forth and dancing and singing round the pond mimic the cries and antics of various aquatic birds and animals such as ducks and frogs. Meanwhile the women are stationed some twenty yards or so away. When the men have done pretending to be ducks, frogs and so forth, they march round the women in single file, throwing the pulverized quartz crystals over them. On their side the women hold up wooden troughs, shields, pieces of bark and so on over their heads, making believe that they are sheltering themselves from a heavy shower of rain. Both these ceremonies are cases of mimetic magic. The splashing of the water over the rain stick is as clearly an imitation of a shower as the throwing of the powder quartz crystal over the women. Rainmaking among the Doeri of Central Australia The Doeri of Central Australia enact a somewhat similar pantomime for the same purpose. In a dry season, their lot is a hard one. No fresh herbs or roots are to be had. And as the parched earth yields no grass, the emus, reptiles, and other creatures which generally furnish the natives with food grow so lean and wizened as to be hardly worth eating. At such a time of severe drought, the diary, loudly lamenting the impoverished state of their country and their own half-starved condition, call upon the spirits of their remote predecessors, whom they call the Muramuras, to grant them power to make a heavy rainfall. For they believe that the clouds are bodies in which rain is generated by their own ceremonies or those of neighbouring tribes who are the influence of the Moramoras. The way in which they set about drawing rain from the clouds is this. A hole is dug about twelve feet long and eight or ten broad, and over this hole a conical hut of logs and branches is made. 
Two wizards, supposed to have received a special inspiration from the murmurers, are bled by an old and influential man with a sharp flint, and the blood, drawn from their arms below the elbow, is made to flow on the other men of the tribe who sit huddled together in the hut. At the same time, the two bleeding men throw handfuls of down about, some of which adheres to the blood-stained bodies of their comrades, while the rest floats in the air. The blood is thought to represent the rain, and the down the clouds. During the ceremony, two large stones are placed in the middle of the hut. They stand for gathering clouds and presage rain. Then the wizards who were bled carry away the two stones for about ten or fifteen miles and place them as high as they can in the tallest tree. Meanwhile, the other men gather gypsum, pound it fine, and throw it into a waterhole. This the Muramuras see, and at once they cause clouds to appear in the sky. Lastly, the men, young and old, surround the hut, and, stooping down, butted it with their heads like so many rams. Thus they force their way through it and reappear on the other side, repeating the process till the hut is wrecked. In doing this, they are forbidden to use their hands or arms, but when the heavy logs alone remain, they are allowed to pull them out with their hands. The piercing of the hut with their heads symbolizes the piercing of the clouds, for the hut before the rain. Obviously, too, the act of placing high up in the trees the two stones which stand for clouds is a way of making the real clouds to mount up in the sky. Use of foreskins in rain-making The diary also imagined that the foreskins taken from lads of circumcision have a great power of producing rain. Hence, the great council of the tribe always keeps a small stock of foreskins ready for use. They are carefully concealed, being wrapped up in feathers with the fat of the wild dog, and of the carpet snake. A woman may not see such a parcel upon on any account. When the ceremony is over, the foreskin is buried, its virtue being exhausted. Use of human blood in rain-making ceremonies. After the rains have fallen, some of the tribe always undergo a surgical operation, which consists in cutting the skin of their chest and arms with a sharp flint. The wound is then tapped with a flat stick to increase the flow of blood, and red ochre is rubbed into it. Raised scars are thus produced. The reason alleged by the natives for this practice is that they are pleased with the rain and that there is a connection between the rain and the scars. Apparently the operation is not very painful, for the patient laughs and jokes while it is going on. Indeed, little children have been seen to crowd round the operator and patiently take their turn. But after being operated on, they ran away, expanding their little chests and singing for the rain to beat upon them. However, they were not so well pleased next day when they felt their wounds stiff and sore. The tribes of the Karamundi nation on the River Darling universally believe that rain can be produced as follows. A vein in the arm of one of the men is opened, and the blood allowed to flow into a piece of hollow bark till it forms a little pool. Powdered gypsum and hair from the man's beard are then added to the blood, and the hole is stirred into a thick paste. Afterwards, the mixture is placed between two pieces of bark and put under water in a river or a lagoon, pointed stakes being driven into the ground to keep it down. When it has all dissolved away, the natives think that a great cloud will come bringing rain. From the time the ceremony is performed until the rain falls, men must abstain from intercourse with their wives, or the charm will be spoiled. In this custom, the body paste seems to be an imitation of the rain cloud. In Java, when rain is wanted, Two men will sometimes thrash each other with supple rods till the blood flows down their backs. The streaming blood represents the rain, and no doubt is supposed to make it fall on the ground.
sanguinary conflicts as means of making rain. People of Egal, a district of Abyssinia, used to engage in sanguinary conflicts with each other, village against village, for a week to either, every January for the purpose of procuring rain. A few years ago, the Emperor Menelik forbade the custom. However, the following year, the rain was deficient and the popular outcry so great that the Emperor yielded to it and allowed murderous fights to be resumed, but for two days a year only. The winter who mentions the custom regards the bloodshed on these occasions as a proprietary sacrifice offered to spirits who control the showers. But perhaps, as in the Australian and Javanese ceremonies, it is an imitation of rain. The prophets of Baal, who sought to procure rain by cutting the soles of knives till the blood gushed out, may have acted on the same principle. Rain-making among the Katish the Katish tribe of Central Australia believe that the rainbow is a son of the rain, and with filial regard he is always anxious to prevent his father from falling down. Hence, if it appears in the sky at a time when the rain is wanted, they sing or enchant it in order to send it away. When the head man of the rain totem in this tribe desires to make rain, he goes to the sacred storehouse of his local group. There he paints the holy stones with red ochre and sings over them and as he sings he pours water from a vessel on them and on himself. Moreover, he paints three rainbows in red ochre, one on the ground, one on his own body, and one on the shield, which he also decorates with zigzag lines of white clay to represent lightning. This shield may only be seen by men of the same exogamous half of the tribe as himself. If men of the other half of the tribe were to see it, the charm would be spoilt. Hence, after bringing the shield away from the sacred place, he hides it in his own camp until the rain has fallen, after which he destroys the rainbow drawings. The intention seems to be to keep the rainbow in custody and prevent it from appearing in the sky until the clouds have burst and moistened the thirsty ground. To ensure that event, the rainmaker on his return to the sacred storehouse keeps a vessel of water by his side in camp and from time to time scatters white down about, which is thought to hasten the rain. Meantime, the men who accompanied him to the holy place go away and camp by themselves, for neither they nor he may have any intercourse with the women. The leader may not even speak to his wife, who absents herself from the camp at the time of his return to it. When later on she comes back, he imitates the call of the plover, a bird whose cry is always associated with the rainy season in these parts. Early next morning, he returns to the sacred storehouse and covers the stones with bushes. After another night passed in silence, he and the other men and women go out in separate directions to search for food. When they meet on their return to camp, they all met with the cry of the bluebird. Then the leader's mouth is touched with some of the food that has been brought in, and thus the ban of silence is removed. If the rain follows, they attribute it to the magical virtue of the ceremony. If it does not, they fall back on the standing excuse that someone else has kept off the rain by stronger magic. Rainmaking among the Arunta. Among the Arunta tribe of Central Australia, a celebrated rainmaker resides at the present day in what is called by the natives the Rain Country, Kartwina Gwathcha, a district about fifty miles to the east of Ellis Springs. He is the head of a group of people who have water for their totem, and when he is about to engage in a ceremony for the making of rain, he summons other men of the water totem from neighbouring groups to come and help him. When all are assembled, they march into camp, painted with red and yellow ochre and pipe clay, and wearing bunches of eagle-hawk feathers on the crown and sides of the head. As signal from the rainmaker, they all sit down in a line, and folding their arms across their breasts, chant certain words for a time. 
Then, at another signal from the master of the ceremonies, they jump up and march in signal file to a spot some miles off where they camp for the night. At break of day, they scatter in all directions to look for game, which is then cooked and eaten, but on no account may any water be drunk, or the ceremony would fail. When they have eaten, they adorn themselves again in a different style, broad bands of white birds down being glued by means of human blood to their stomach, legs, arms, and forehead. Meanwhile, a special hut of boughs has been made by some older men, not far from the main camp. Its floor is strewn with a thick layer of gum leaves to make it soft, for a good deal of time has to be spent lying down here. Close to the entrance of the hut, a shallow trench, some thirty yards long, is excavated in the ground. At sunset, the performers, arrayed in all the finery of white down, march to the hut. On reaching it, the young men go in first and lie face downwards, at the inner end, where they have to stay till the ceremony is over. None of them is allowed to quit it on any pretext. Meanwhile, outside the hut, the older men are busy decorating the rainmaker. Hair girdles covered with white down are placed all over his head, while his cheeks and forehead are painted with pipe clay, and two broad bands of white down pass across the face, one over the eyebrows and the other over the nose. The front of his body is adorned with a broad band of pipe clay, fringed with white down, and rings of white down encircle his arms thus decorated with patches of birds down adhering by means of human blood to his hair and the whole of his body the disguised man is said to be present at a spectacle which once seen can never be forgotten he now takes up a position close to the opening of the hut then the old men sing a song and when it is finished the rainmaker comes out of the hut and stalks slowly twice up and down the shallow trench quivering his body and legs in a most extraordinary way every nerve and fibre seeming to tremble while he is thus engaged, the young men, who had been lying flat on their faces, get up and join the old men in chanting a song, with which the movements of the rainmaker seem to accord. But as soon as he re-enters the hut, the young men at once prostrate themselves again, for they must always be lying down when he is in the hut. The performance is repeated at intervals during the night, and the singing goes on with little intermission until, just when the day is breaking, the rainmaker executes a final quiver, which lasts longer than any of the others, and seems to exhaust his remaining strength completely. Then he declares the ceremony to be over, and at once the young men jump to their feet and rush out of the hut, screaming in imitation of the spur-winged plover. The cry is heard by the men and women who have been left at the main camp, and they take it up with weird effect. Rain-making by imitation of clouds and storm Although we cannot, perhaps, divine the meaning of all the details of this curious ceremony, the analogy of the Queensland and the deity ceremonies described above suggest that we have here a rude attempt to represent the gathering of rain clouds and the other accompaniments of a rising storm the hut of branches like the structure of logs among the deity and perhaps the conical shed in queensland may possibly stand for the vault of heaven from which the rain clouds represented by the chief actor in his quaint costume of white down come forth to move in ever-shifting shapes across the sky just as he struts quivering up and down the trench the other performers also adorned with birds down who burst from the tent with the cries of plovers probably imitate birds that are supposed to harbinger or accompany rain this interpretation is confirmed by other ceremonies in which the performers definitely assimilate themselves to the celestial or atmospheric phenomena which they seek to produce thus in maboig a small island in the torres strait when a wizard desired to make rain he took some bushel plant and painted himself black and white all along same as clouds black behind white he go first he further put a large woman's petticoat to signify raining clouds 
On the other hand, when he wished to stop the rain, he put red paint on the crown of his head to represent the shining sun, and he inserted a small bell of red paint in another part of his person. By and by he expelled this ball, like breaking a cloud so that sun he may shine. He then took some bushes and leaves of the pandanus, mixed them together, and placed the compound in the sea. Afterwards he removed them from the water, dried them, and burnt them so that the smoke went up, thereby typifying, as Dr. Haddon was informed, the evaporation and dispersal of the clouds. Again it is said that if a Malay woman puts upon her head an inverted earthenware pan, and then setting it upon the ground, fills it with water and washes the cat in it till the animal is nearly drowned. Heavy rain will certainly follow. In this performance, the inverted pan is intended, as Mr. Skeet was told, to symbolize the vault of heaven. Belief that twins can control the weather. There is a widespread belief that twin children possess magical powers over nature, especially over rain and the weather. This curious superstition prevails among some of the Indian tribes of British Columbia, and has led them to impose certain singular restrictions or taboos on the parents of twins, though the exact meaning of these restrictions is generally obscure. Superstitions as to twins among the Indians of British Columbia. Thus the Tsimshen Indians of British Columbia believe that twins control the weather, therefore they pray to wind and rain. Calm down, breath of twins. Further, they think that the wishes of twins are always fulfilled, Hence, twins are feared because they can harm the man they hate. They can also call the salmon and the olachen or candlefish, and so they are known by a name which means making plentiful. In the opinion of the Quakutu Indians of British Columbia, twins are transformed salmon. Hence, they may not go near water, lest they should be changed back again into the fish. In their childhood, they can summon any wind by motion of their hands, and they can make fair or foul weather and also cure diseases by swing and large wooden rattle. Their parents must live secluded in the woods for sixteen months after the birth, doing no work, borrowing nobody's canoes, paddles, or dishes, and keeping their faces painted red all the time. If the father were to catch salmon, or the mother were to dig clams, the salmon and the clams would disappear. Moreover, the parents separate from each other, and must pretend to be married to a log, with which they lie down every night. They are forbidden to touch each other, and even their own hair. A year after the birth, they drive wedges into the tree in the woods, asking it to let them work again when four more months have passed. The Nootcut Indians of British Columbia also believe that twins are somehow related to salmon. Hence among them, twins may not catch salmon, and they may not eat or even handle the fresh fish. They can make fair or foul weather, and can cause rain to fall by painting their faces black and then washing them, which may represent the rain dripping from the dark clouds. Conversely, among the Angoli of Central Africa, there is a woman who stops rain by tying a strip of white calico round her black head, probably in imitation of the skies clearing after a heavy storm. The parents of twins among the Nuktas must build a small hut in the woods on the bank of a river, far from the village, and where they must live for two years, avoiding other people. They may not eat or even touch fresh food, particularly salmon. Superstitions as to twins among the Indians of British Columbia. Wooden images and masks of birds and fish are placed round the hut, and others, representing fish, are set near the river for the purpose of inviting all birds and fish to come and see the twins and be friendly to them. Moreover, the father sings a special song praising the salmon and asking them to come, and the fish do come in great numbers to see the twins. 
Therefore, the birth of twins is believed to prognosticate a good year for salmon. But though a nukta father of twins has thus to live in seclusion for two years, abstaining from fresh meat and attending none of the ordinary feasts, he is, by a singular exception, invited to banquets which consist wholly of dried provisions, and at them he is treated with great respect and seated among the chiefs, even though he be himself a mere commoner. The birth of twins among the nuktas is said to be very rare, but one occurred while Jewit lived with the tribe. He reports that the father always appeared very thoughtful and gloomy and never associated with other people. His dress was very plain, and he wore around his head the red fillet of bark, the symbol of mourning and devotion. It was his daily practice to repair to the mountain with a chief's rattle in his hand to sing and pray, as Maquino informed me, for the fish to come into the waters. When not thus employed, he kept continuously at home, except when sent for us to sing and perform his ceremonies over the sick, being considered as a sacred character and one much in favour with the gods. Among the Thompson Indians of British Columbia, twins are called grizzly bear children, or hairy feet, because they were thought to be under the protection of the grizzly bear, and to be endowed by him with special powers, such as that of making fair or foul weather. After the birth, the parents moved away from other people and lived in a lodge made of fir boughs and bark till the children were about four years old. During all this time, great care was taken of the twins. They might not come into contact with other people and were washed with fur twigs dipped in water. While they were being washed, the father described circles round them with fur boughs, singing the song of the grizzly bear. Superstitions as to twins in West Africa with these American beliefs, we may compare an African one. The Negroes of Porto Novo, on the Bight of Benin, hold that twins have for their companions certain spirits or genii, like those which animate a kind of small ape which abounds in the forests of Guinea. When the twins grow up, they will not be allowed to eat the flesh of apes, and meantime, the mother carries offerings of bananas and other dainties to the apes in the forest. Precisely similar beliefs and customs as to twins prevail in the whole tribe of German Togoland. There the twins are called children of apes, neither they nor their parents may eat the flesh of the particular species of apes with which they are associated, and if a hunter kills one of these animals, the parents must beat him with a stick. But to return to America, the Shaswap Indians of British Columbia, like the Thompson Indians, associate twins with the grizzly bear, or they call them young grizzly bears. According to them, twins remain throughout life endowed with supernatural powers. In particular, they can make good or bad weather. They produce rain by spilling water from a basket in the air. They make fine weather by shaking a small flat piece of wood attached to a stick by a string. They raise storms by strewing down on the ends of spruce branches. Superstitions as to twins among the Indians of Peru The Indians of Peru entertain similar notions as a special relation in which twins stand in the rain and the weather. For they said that one of each pair of twins was a son of the lightning, and they called the lightning the lord and creator of rain, and prayed to him to send showers. The parents of twins had to fast for many days after the birth, abstaining from salt and pepper, that they might not have intercourse with each other. In some parts of Peru, this period of fasting and abstinence lasted six months. In other parts, both the father and the mother had to lie down on one side, with one leg drawn up, and a bean placed in the hollow of the ham. In this position, they had to lie without moving for five days. Two of their heat and sweat of their bodies, the beans began to sprout. Then they changed over to the other side, and lay on it in like manner for five days, fasting in the way described. When the ten days were up, their relations went out to hunt, 
and having killed and skinned a deer, they made a robe of its hide, under which they caused the parents of the twins to pass, with cords about their necks, which they afterwards wore for many days. If the twins died young, their bodies enclosed in pots were kept in the house as sacred things, but if they lived, and it happened that a frost set in, the priests sent for them, together with all the persons who had hair lips or had been born feet foremost, and rated them soundly for being the cause of the frost, in that they had not fasted from salt and pepper. Wherefore they were ordered to fast for ten more days in the usual manner, and to abstain from their wives, and to wash themselves, and to acknowledge and confess their sins. After their normal conversion to Christianity, the Peruvian Indians retained their belief that one of the twins was always the son of the lightning, and oddly enough they regularly gave him the name of St. James, Santiago. The Spanish Jesuit, who reports the custom, was at a loss to account for it. It could not, he thought, have originated in the name of Bonerds or the son of thunder, which Christ applied to the two brothers James and John. He suggests two explanations. The Indians may have adopted the name because they had heard a phrase used by Spanish children when it thunders, the horse of Santiago is running, or it may have been because they saw that the Spanish infantry in battle before they fired their arquebuses always cried out, Santiago, Santiago. For the Indians called the arquebus Ilapa, that is, lightning, and they might easily imagine that the name which they heard shouted just before the flash and roar of the guns was that of Spanish god of thunder and lightning. However, they came by the name. They made such frequent and superstitious use of it that the church forbade any Indian to bear the name of Santiago. Superstitions as to Twins in Africa The same power of influencing the weather is attributed to twins by the Barunga, a tribe of Bantu Negroes, who inhabit the shores of Delonga Bay in southeastern Africa. They bestowed the name of Tolo, that is, the sky, on a woman who has given birth to twins, and the infants themselves are called the children of the sky. Now when the storms, which generally burst in the months of September and October, have been looked for in vain, when a drought with this prospect of famine is threatening, and all nature is scorched and burned up by a sun that has shone for six months on a cloudless sky, is panting for the beneficent showers of the South African spring, the women perform ceremonies to bring down the longed-for rain on the parched earth. Stripping themselves of all their garments, they assume in their stead girdles and headdresses of grass, or short petticoats made of the leaves of a particular sort of creeper. Thus attired, uttering peculiar cries and singing, ribald songs, they go about from well to well, cleansing them of the mud and impurities which have accumulated in them. The wells, it may be said, are merely holes in the sand where a little turbid, unwholesome water stagnates. Further, the women must repair to the house of one of their gossips who has given birth to twins, and must drench her with water, which they carry in little pitchers. Having done so, they go on their way, shrieking out the loose songs and dancing in modest dances. No man may see these leaf-clad women going their rounds. If they meet a man, they maul him and thrust him aside. When they have cleansed the wells, they must go and pour water on the graves of their ancestors in the sacred grove. It often happens, too, that, at the bidding of the wizard, they go and pour water on the grave of twins, for they think that the grave of a twin ought always to be moist, for which reason twins are regularly buried near a lake. If all their efforts to procure rain prove abortive, they will remember that such and such a twin was buried in a dry place on the side of a hill. No wonder, says a wizard in such a case, that the sky is fiery. Take up his body and dig him a grave on the shore of a lake. His orders are at once obeyed but this is supposed to be the only means of bringing down the rain. The Swiss missionary who reports this strange superstition has also suggested what appears to be his true explanation. He points out that, as the mother of twins is called 
by the Barunga, the sky, they probably think that to pour water on her is equivalent to pouring water on the sky itself, and if the water be poured on the sky, it will, of course, drip through it as through the nozzle of a gigantic watering pot, and fall on the earth beneath. A slight extension of the same train of reasoning explains why the desired result is believed to be expedited by drenching the graves of twins who are the children of the sky. Among the Zulus, twins are supposed to be able to foretell the weather, and people who want rain will go to a twin and say, Tell me, do you feel ill today? If he says he feels quite well, they know it will not rain. The Wanyamyesi, a large tribe of Central Africa to the south of the Victorian Yanza, also believe in the special association of twins with weather. For amongst them, when a twin is about to cross a river, stream, or lake, he must fill his mouth full of water and spurt it out over the surface of the river or lake, adding, I am a twin, Nana Impasa, and he must do the same if a storm arises on a lake over which he is sailing. Were he to admit the ceremony, some harm might befall him or his companions. In this tribe, the birth of twins is comparatively common, as attended by a number of ceremonies. Old women march about the village collecting gifts for the infants while they drum with a hoe on a piece of oxide and sing an obscene song in praise of the father. Further, two little fetish huts are built for the twins before their mother's house, and here people sacrifice them in season and out of season, especially when somebody is sick or about to go on a journey or to the wars. If one or both twins die, two aloes are planted beside the little fetish hut. Lastly, the Hindus of the central provinces of India believe that a twin can save the crops from the ravages of hail and heavy rain if he will only paint his right buttock black and his left buttock some other colour, and thus adorned, go and stand in the direction of the wind. The Rainmaker assimilates himself to rain. Many of the foregoing facts strongly support an interpretation which Professor Oldenburg has given of the rules to be observed by a Brahmin who would learn a particular hymn of the ancient Indian collection known as the Samaveda. The hymn bears the name of the Sakvari song, was believed to embody the might of Indra's weapon, the thunderbolt, and hence on account of the dreadful and dangerous potency with which it was thus charged. The bold student who essayed to master it had to be isolated from his fellow men and to retire from the village into the forest. Here for a space of time, which might not vary according to different doctors of the law, from one to twelve years, he had to observe certain rules of life among which were the following thrice a day he had to touch water he must wear black garments and eat black food when it rained he might not seek the shelter of a roof but had to sit in the rain and say water is a sakvari song when the lightning flashed he said that is like the sakvari song when the thunder pealed he said the great one is making a great noise he might never cross a running stream without touching water he might never set foot on a ship unless his life were in danger even then he must be sure to touch water when he went on board for in water so ran the saying lies the virtue of the sakvari song when at last he had allowed to learn the song itself he had to dip his hands in a vessel of water in which plants of all sorts had been placed if a man walked in the way of all these precepts the rain god parjanya it was said would send rain at the wish of that man it is clear as professor oldenburg well points out that all these rules are intended to bring the Brahmin into union with water, to make him, as it were, an ally of the water powers, and to guard him against their hostility. The black garments and the black food have the same significance. No one will doubt that they refer to the rain clouds when he remembers that a black victim is sacrificed to procure rain. It is black, but such is the nature of rain. In respect of another rain charm, it is said plainly, he puts on a black garment edged with black, but such is the nature of rain. 
We may therefore assume that here in the circle of ideas and ordinances of the Vedic schools there have been preserved magical practices of the most remote antiquity, which were intended to prepare the rainmaker for his office and dedicate him to it. On the contrary, the maker of dry weather must himself be dry. It is interesting to observe that where an opposite result is desired, primitive logic enjoins the weather doctor to observe precisely opposite rules of conduct. In the tropical island of Java, where the rich vegetation attests the abundance of the rainfall, ceremonies for the making of rain are rare, but ceremonies for the prevention of it are not uncommon. When a man is about to give a great feast in the rainy season and has invited many people, he goes to a weather doctor and asks him to prop up the clouds that may be lowering. If the doctor consents to exert his professional powers, he begins to regulate his behaviour by certain rules as soon as his customer has departed. He must observe a fast. And might neither drink nor bathe. What little he eats must be eaten dry, and in no case he may touch water. The host on his side, and his servants, both male and female, must neither wash clothes nor bathe so long as the feast lasts, and they have all during its continuance to observe strict chastity. The doctor seats himself on a new mat in his bedroom, and before a small oil lamp he murmurs shortly before the feast takes place, the following prayer or incantation. Grandfather and Grandmother Sorokel, the name seems to be taken at random, others are sometimes used, return to your country, Akamat is your country, put down your water cask, close it properly, that not a drop may fall out. While he utters his prayer, the sorcerer looks upwards, burning incense the while, so among the toradges of Santo Salives, the rain doctor, Sando, whose special business is to drive away rain, takes care not to touch water before, during, or after the discharge of his professional duties. He does not bathe, he eats with unwashed hands, he drinks nothing but palm wine, and if he has to cross a stream, he is careful not to step in the water. Having thus prepared himself for his task, he has a small hut built for himself outside of the village in a rice field, and in this hut he keeps up a little fire, which on no account may be suffered to go out. In the fire he burns various kinds of wood, which are supposed to possess the property of driving off rain and he puffs in the direction from which the rain threatens to come, holding in his hand a packet of leaves and bark which derive a similar cloud-compelling virtue, not from their chemical composition, but from their names, which happens to signify something dry or volatile. If clouds should appear in the sky while he is at work, he takes lime in the hollow of his hand and blows it towards them. The lime, being so very dry, is obviously well adapted to disperse the damp clouds. Should rain afterwards be wanted, he has only to pour water on his fire, and immediately the rain will descend in sheets. So in Santa Cruz and Reef Islands, when the man who has power over rain wishes to prevent it from falling, he will abstain from washing his face for a long time, and will do no work, lest he should sweat and his body be wet. For they think that if his body be wet, it will rain. On the other hand, when he desires to bring on rain, he goes into the house where the spirit or ghost of the rain is believed to reside, and there he sprinkles water at the head of the ghost post, Doka in order that showers may fall. To make wet weather, you must be wet. To make dry weather, you must be dry. The reader will observe how exactly the Javanese and Toradja observances, which are intended to prevent rain, form the antithesis of the Indian observances which aim at producing it. The Indian sage is commanded to touch water thrice, a day regularly as well as on various special occasions. The Javanese and Toradja wizards may not touch it at all. The Indian lives out in the forest, and even when it rains, he may not take shelter. The Javanese and the Toraja sit in a house or a hut. 
the one signifies his sympathy with water by receiving the rain on his person and speaking of it respectfully the others light a lamp or a fire and do their best to drive the rain away yet the principle on which all three act is the same each of them by a sort of childish make-believe identifies himself with the phenomenon which he desires to produce it is the old fallacy that the effect resembles its cause if you would make wet weather you must be wet if you would make dry weather you must be dry rain-making in southeastern europe by drenching with water a leaf-clad girl or boy who represents vegetation in southeastern europe at the present day ceremonies are observed for the purpose of making rain which not only rest on the same general train of thought as the preceding but even in their details resemble the ceremonies practised with the same intention by the baronga of de loga bay among the greeks of thessaly and macedonia when a drought has lasted a long time it is customary to send a procession of children round to all the wells and springs of the neighbourhood at the head of the procession walks a girl adorned with flowers whom her companions drench with water at every halting pace while they sing an invocation of which the following is part perperia all fresh bedowed fresh in all the neighbourhood by the woods on the highway as thou goest to god now pray o my god upon the plain send thou us a still small rain that the fields may fruitful be and vines in blossom we may see that the grain be full and sound and wealthy grow the folks around rain-making in servia in the time of drought the servians strip a girl to her skin and clothe her from head to foot in grass herbs and flowers even if has been hidden behind a veil of living green thus disguised she is called the dodola and goes through the village with a troop of girls they stop before every house the dolora keeps turning herself round and dancing while the other girls form a ring about her singing one of the dodola songs and the housewife pours a pail of water over her one of the songs they sing runs thus we go through a village the clouds go in the sky we go faster faster go the clouds they have overtaken us and wetted the corn and the vine rain-making in romania a similar custom is observed in greece and romania in romania the rain-making is called papuruda or baburuda she is a gypsy girl who goes naked except for a short skirt of dwarf elder sambucus ebulus or of corn and vines thus scantily attired the girls go in procession from house to house seen for rain and are drenched by the pavement with buckets of water the ceremony regularly takes place all over romania on the third tuesday after easter but it may be repeated at any time of drought during the summer but the romanians have another way of procuring rain they make a clay figure to represent drought cover it with a pole and place it in an open coffin girls crouch round the coffin and lament saying drought scoloi is dead lord give us rain and the coffin is carried by children in funeral procession with a burning wax candle before it while lamentations fill the air finally they throw the coffin and the candle into a stream or a well rain-making in bulgaria when rain is wanted in bulgaria the people dress up a girl in branches of nut trees flowers and the green stuff of beans potatoes and onions she carries a nosegay of flowers in her hand and is called the jewel or peperuga attended by a train of followers she goes from house to house as received by the good man with a kettle of water on which flowers are swimming with this water he drenches her while the song is sung the perpluga flew god give rain that the corn the millet and the wheat may thrive rain-making in macedonia and dalmatia sometimes the girl is dressed in flax to the girdle 
at Melinic, Greek town of Macedonia, poor orphan boy parades the streets in times of drought, decked with ferns and flowers, and attended by other boys of about the same age. The women shower water and money on him from the windows. He is called Duduel, and as they march along, the boys sing a song which begins, Hail, hail, Duduel, bring us both maize and wheat. In Dalmetia, also their custom is observed. The performer is a young, unmarried man who is dressed up, dances, and has water poured over him. He goes by the name of Prebats, and is attended by companions called Preporush, who are young bachelors like himself. In such customs, the leaf-clad person appears to personify vegetation, and the drenching of him or her with water is certainly an imitation of rain. The words of the Serbian song, however, taken in connection with the constant movement which the chief actress in the performance seems expected to keep up, points to some comparison of the girl or her companions to clouds moving through the sky. This again reminds us of the old quivering movement kept up by the Australian rainmaker, who, in his disguise of white down, may perhaps represent a cloud. The King of Rain in India At Pune in India, when rain is needed, the boys dress up one of their number in nothing but leaves and call him King of Rain, Baruj Raja. Then they go round to every house in the village, where the householder or his wife sprinkles a rain king with water and gives the party food of various kinds. When they have thus visited all the houses, they strip the rain king of his leafy robes and feast upon what they have gathered. Rainmaking in Armenia Similar rain charms are practiced in Armenia, except that there the representative of vegetation is an effigy or doll, not a person. The children dress up a broomstick as a girl and carry it from house to house. Before every house they sing a song of which the following is one version. Nerin, Nerin is come. The wondrous maiden is come. A shirt of red stuff she has put on. With a red girdle she is girdled. Bring water to pour on her head. Bring butter to smear on her hair. Let the blessed rain fall. Let the fields of your fathers grow green. Give our Nerin her share. And we will eat and drink and be merry. The children are asked, Will you have it from the door or from the garret window? If they choose the door, the water is poured on Nurin from the window, and if they choose the window, it is poured on her from the door. Each house they receive presents of butter, eggs, rice, and so forth. Afterwards they take Nurin to a river and throw her into the water. Sometimes the figure has a head of a pig or a goat and is covered with boughs. At Agen in Armenia, when rain is wanted, boys carry about an effigy, which they call Chichi Mama or the drenched mother, as they interpret the phrase. As they go about, they ask, What does Chi-Chi mother want? The answer is, She wants wheat in her bins, she wants bread on her bread hooks, and she wants rain from God. The people pour water on her from roofs, and rich people make presents to the children. At Orfa in Armenia, the children in time of drought make a rain bride, which they called Chimchik Gelen. They say this means in Turkish, shovel bride. While they carry it about, they say, What does Chin she Gillen want. She wishes mercy from God. She wants offerings of lambs and rams. And the crowd responds, Give my God, give rain, give a flood. The rain bride is then thrown into the water. Rain making in Palestine and Moab. At Kerak in Palestine, whenever there is a drought, the Greek Christians dress up a winnowing fork in women's clothes. They call it the bride of God. The girls and women carry from house to house, singing doggerel songs. We are told that the bride of God is drenched with water or thrown into a stream, but the charm would hardly be complete without this feature. Similarly, when rain is much wanted, the Arabs of Moab attire a dummy in the robes and ornaments of a woman and call it the mother of the rain. A woman carries in possession past the houses of the village or the tents of the camp, singing, 
O mother of the rain, O immortal, moisten our sleeping seeds, moisten the sleeping seeds of this sheep, who is ever generous. She is gone, the mother of the rain, to bring the storm. When she comes back, the crops are as high as the walls. She is gone, the mother of the rain, to bring the winds. When she comes back, the plantations have attained the height of lances. She is gone, the mother of the rain, to bring the thunders. When she comes back, the crops are as high as camels. And so on. End of section 10